everyone. For today, I'm actually joined with author David Bushman, and I'll hand over the mic so he can introduce himself further. Hi, Colin. Yeah, I, I did write, I have written, I guess now, three books with the Twin Peaks theme. The first one I wrote was back right around the time that it was coming back on Showtime. It was the Twin Peaks FAQ book. And then after that, I um, got the idea of there's so much literature on uh, David Lynch, who I think, as much as I admire him, uh, which is a lot as a filmmaker, I think he gets too much credit for Twin Peaks. So I reached out to Mark Frost and uh, asked him, you know, would you be interested in doing a book like this on you? And he sort of took a while for him to, I mean, he responded immediately. It took a while for him to say yes, but eventually he did. So conversations with Mark Frost came out of that. And then most recently in January of this year, Mark Givens, who does the Dear Metal Radio podcast, and I uh, wrote, uh, had published a book called Murder at Teal's Pond, Hazel, Drew, and the Mystery That Inspired Twin Peaks, which is about the true life murder of um, a 19-year-old woman in upstate New York that played a significant role in Mark's contribution to the Laura Palmer story. So I guess to start off with uh, Jack Parsons in particular, is that he was actually born with the name Marvel Whiteside Parsons, born on October 2nd of 1914 to a Marvel Parsons and Ruth Virginia Whiteside. And unfortunately, because he had an unfaithful father, it led to a divorce in March of 1915. It must have been such a nasty enough divorce that uh, his mother started calling him John from that point on. Just because of the way life was around like 100 plus years ago, what happened is that her parents moved to Pasadena into Orange Grove Boulevard. You know, as he was growing up, he had poor grades. It's debated if it's possibly undiagnosed dyslexia. And I know he was also considered unpopular because I think he was considered to have a more effeminate nature compared to his others, to the other students of the school. But he did, however, befriend a, a boy named Edward Foreman, who was a working class kid and would even defend from bullies. And uh, a lot of this was deeply rooted in their share for the passion for Jules Verne, sci-fi and rocketry. Before we go any further into the rocketry aspect, was there anything I should add about his childhood? No, it's like, like you said, it sounds like he had a pretty messed up childhood. His uh, relationship with his father was really not good because um, he uh, his mother prohibited his father from seeing him. And then uh, I think his mother, his relationship with his mother probably um, bordered on strange, which is something that you'll see kind of at the end of his life. But yeah, I think it was pretty, uh, and he came from a lot of money. I mean, he lived in a very wealthy area of Pasadena, but that money eventually, uh, that wealth sort of dissipated. And then he lived in a, with, in a different type of situation. So I think there was a lot of change and disruption and that it was not an easy childhood. The one last thing before we go into the rocketry is that for I understand, he actually had a half brother. He only got to see once. And I imagine that when you're at a young age, like we'll say middle school or high school, that's gotta be pretty tough knowing that there's a sibling out there and that you just don't really get to see. Yeah, I think if you sort of combine all those things that both you and I have talked about, it's not, plus an inquisitive mind or a, you know, a curious, inquisitive mind, it's not hard to see 
why he took refuge in what you talked about, Jules Verne and comic books and so on. And then later on with other things in his life. So yeah, yeah, it was a difficult childhood. To move on to uh, the rocketry aspect, he began constructing his own rockets in his own back garden. I'm surprised he got away with this because there were scorched craters just all over the general vicinity. And then also Foreman, he said that Parsons also experimented with glue to bind the loose powder. And they also used cherry bombs and even aluminum foil for ease. I think it was around when he was 14 in particular. He was worried that he summoned the devil in early on. It actually was the thing that prompted him to step away from occultism and just step away from, I believe, even rocketry for a set time. I guess on the topic of him accidentally summoned the devil, if you will, what is it that you think that at 14 years old, where Parsons was so scared by it, but then would embrace the cult like tenfold later on in life? Well, I mean, I think he clearly, uh, again, you know, sort of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, I think he clearly had, what is it called? He had some sort of, what is it called? People who sort of court danger or like living life on the edge. And uh, I mean, later on, you'll find out the group that, uh, that he was working with on, on Rockard uh, Engine Development was called the Suicide Squad because... I mean, he clearly was almost courting death throughout. He he had what is a thrill, uh... probably thrill seeker. Uh, and there's probably a more specific term, but I think that's at least pretty fitting for his life, definitely in his adult life. Yeah, that's and I think that was a term I was looking for. And I think what you're getting to is that he, uh, you know, you see the roots in this much earlier on. I mean, he was constantly living life on the edge in so many ways, whether it was drugs or playing around with these chemicals or trying to summon demons. I mean, it's just a, a through pattern in his life. And again, we, you know, I don't want to play amateur psychiatrist in any way whatsoever, but you can see that it was a life with it, well, a childhood without stability, a childhood that was full of disruption. Certainly he must have been unhappy uh, a lot. So, you know, again, I, I hate the, I, I hate it when writers do this, like they try to figure out why Charles Manson killed all those people and stuff and pretend that they're psychiatrists, but that you, there are clear patterns here where he uh, was courting danger. And I think that, that you see it throughout. That actually sounds like a pretty accurate assessment. He went to the John Muir High School for a time, and then also the uh, Brown Military Academy for Boys, where he was eventually expelled for blowing up toilets. They both end up eventually graduating in 1933, where they worked for the Hercules Powder Company, like I think a year prior. And admittedly, neither of them graduated college, but they both found work at uh, Halifax Explosives in the Mojave Desert. And also, they would both attend Caltech, and I believe that was off of Grant, keeping their rocketry interests under wraps, uh, mostly because scientists just scoffed at it as like, being deemed impossible and just a total pipe dream. Is there anything about their latter high school days and early college days that I might be overlooking? No, just again, I, when you say both, you're, I assume you're talking about Foreman and uh, Parsons. But no, again, you know, more kind of instability and um, just trouble, I guess. I, I, I don't know. No, he, uh, you know, he was this brilliant guy who just couldn't function within the uh, constraints that society, it, typical societal constraints, that he just wasn't made to, uh, wasn't wired to function that way. And so if you look at, you know, here's this rocket genius who didn't even graduate from college, you sort of see this. He just was not wired to function in a way that society has come to see as acceptable. True of a lot of geniuses, too, you know, so. 
Also, this is around the introduction where aerodynamist Theodore von Kormann, they approved their proposal under the guise of a third student that they would end up meeting, Frank Molina. They did this all under a rocket design PhD for Molina. Unfortunately, as the, like one of the things that did happen is that even though it seemed like they were having some success, there was one misfired rocket that led them being out, moved outside, and then a second misfire that forced them into the desert entirely. And it's around the uh, these misfirings where they did get the name of the Suicide Squad. It was also during this time, roughly, where Jack Parsons met his first wife, Helen uh, Northrup, and it was at all things a local church, only to marry near, uh, a year later. But the thing is that to just show how committed Parsons was to rocketry, he spent uh, most of his money funding the uh, rocket research group and was making extra money manufacturing nicer nitroglycerin at home. He even pawned off uh, Helen's engagement ring and even went as far to ask her family for loans. And also another thing they were trying to do at the time, and it does feel like there's some ominous foreshadowing, is that they apparently attempted to make a screenplay about their endeavors, um, them being Parsons, Foreman, and Molina, where in, at the end, Parsons, uh, or at least the Parsons character, would die at the end trying to stop an experiment. And then this is probably where the occult influence started to emerge is because this is where Parsons started to discover Aleister Crowley and Thelema at large. Before we get into anything pertaining to the occult and how it coincides with his love for rocketry, was there anything else we should mention about his college days? No, I mean, not, you know, not your typical definition of college days, but uh, there was nothing about his life that was very typical. Yeah, I mean, you're telling me, Colin, stuff that I didn't even know, uh, some of these details that, you know, you obviously did great research. So uh, just, again, very, a very uh, anomalous background in terms of scientists. There's this rocket scientist. Yeah. So, nope, I don't have anything to add. It's around this point where uh, Jack and Helen, they end up joining the Ordo Templi Orientis, which I'll just uh, abbreviate to OTO from this point onward. This was for specifically the Pasadena chapter, known more so as the Agape Lodge. It's around this point where Parsons would actually write to Crowley, and he would actually ascend in a relatively quick fashion to the American representative for the OTO. This is to coincide with his occultic beliefs, is that the Jet Assist Takeoff, which I'll abbreviate as uh, JADO, was actually the first product made when uh, the three of them and Von Korman, who I mentioned earlier, would found the Aerojet Corporation. To further coincide with his fixation on the occult, Parsons would, for every rocket test, would dance and chant to uh, Crowley's Hymn to Pan. I know that with saying that from the outside looking in, it looks pretty absurd, but I feel like even with Parsons and his idiosyncrasies that he believed that there was some like very serious in terms of how this would go and how this would uh, change the trajectory of his rocketry. Was there anything I should mention about his early days of meeting Crowley or how he ascended the rank so quickly? Well, um, my research shows that it was a married couple friend of his named John and Francis Baxter, who had introduced him to Thelema, and he went to a meeting and um, was found it uh, seductive, and that Helen was a little less eager. <clears throat> she eventually did. In my research, I don't come across any face-to-face -face meeting between him and, and Crowley, who was on the other side of the pond in, in England. So uh, I don't know that he ever met Crowley. Did you find something different? From what I've seen, it was pretty much explicitly through letters. I think this is well before the days of long-distance calls. So I think that's pretty much how they're relegated to, but I think that Crowley saw a lot in Parsons and, of course, vice versa. So I think that he just kind of saw... Again, I, I hate to, you know, like you were saying earlier, I would hate to play, like, the basically amateur psychologist, but 
I would guess that Crowley could just tell there was something distinct about Parsons, just like the way his wording and the the enthusiasm that he had for Thelema. I don't want to dive into basically armchair psychologists, but that was my takeaway in terms of why they sustained communication even up until Crowley's death. Right. Well, well, Crowley was clearly like he was the one who had appropriated this um, Thelema from uh, literature, really, from from a centuries old satirical novel and, and made it a religion. And, and, you know, he was the guy clearly who everybody's his approval was he was the leader and every and he everyone was constantly vying for his approval. So, you know, and if you had his approval, it was like this. He was like the Pope of Thelema, you know, and uh yeah, and so he did see something uh, very early on in Crowley that enabled Crowley to rise up through the ranks, specifically in this, um, I don't even, I never really got a sense also in my research of how widespread it was in America beyond Pasadena, the Pasadena chapter, which was where Parsons was uh, operating out of. So, I, you know, I never got a sense of how national it became or or anything of that nature. Everything sort of seemed to be centered in Pasadena and this parsonage, this house that Parsons had. So he was certainly, uh, Parsons certainly did rise up through the ranks and become, you know, the leader um, in this area. And Crowley was was taken with him for a while. Eventually they would have their split. But I mean, it's not hard to see why. I mean, Parsons was obviously brilliant. And from everything that you read, he was very charismatic and just threw himself totally into this into this bizarre uh, religion. Not that any, you know, I mean, from the outside, I think any religion would look bizarre, but this one certainly does. So, yeah, I think you're right on the money again, Colin. Oh, thank you. Leading into the parsonage, um, Jado, they end up impressing the military slash uh, United States Air Force, and it led to the Aerojet Engineering Corporation to be created so they could meet the demand for World War II. And then that subsequently what led to JPL, that being Jet Propulsion Laboratory, being founded in 1943. It didn't have rockets in the title because, from what I understand, there was still that stigma of like rocketry and how it was still deemed a pipe dream. The success would lead to the occultic parties that were filled with sex and drugs. And then the Parsonage, which is a house that he ended up buying in the midst of making all this money. And of course, the success of his business coincided with World War II. And then Parsons, this is where it starts getting pretty dicey for him, is that he ended up sleeping with Helen's uh, underage sister, Sarah slash Betty, depending on which one you'd prefer. And the thing I should point out is that she was 11 years younger than him and was under the age of uh, consent. And then Helen, she would actually retaliate by getting with the uh, OTO head um, named Wilfred Smith. The crazy part and most ironic part, really, is that the OTO belief was that uh, jealousy was not a feeling for the enlightened. But this would unfortunately set a precedent for Jack and Helen's marriage and just like the rocky relationship that they go on from this point onward. So before we get into anything with L. Ron Hubbard, because this is where it starts to really coincide with the secret history, was there anything I should keep in mind about JPL or anything about Parsons and his uh, first wife's marriage? Yeah, well, um, as I mentioned, um, I think certainly Crowley was known as being extremely promiscuous and had relations with people from both sex, from both males and females. I don't think you can say both sexes anymore, but um, 
I think that um, we read in our research that about this break between Helen and Jack because of Sarah, but he also, I don't know if his philandering started before that or after that, or whether, you know, there were uh, relationships with other women before Sarah or whether he lived, you know, forced himself to live within the conventions of society until then. But he certainly also had a reputation of being a philanderer. And, you know, part of this goes back to this idea of the Lima and the, uh, I had mentioned to you that it was appropriated by Crowley from a satire that was written back in the 16th century and that sort of promoted itself as a religion dedicated to free will. You do, you know, there's no laws or rules or anything. You basically do whatever you find pleasurable or whatever you want. And, and if you just extend that um, philosophy out into relationships, you can see where these people didn't feel constrained by the rules of, of marriage. So it was consistent with this religion that they had embraced, which was intended originally just as satire, but Crowley took it literally and made it his uh, way of life. You mentioned that Helen became involved with uh, Smith. I think that the only time I ever see him, uh, Parsons, and you know, again, uh, any history that I read of Jack Parsons is going to be filtered through the lens of whoever wrote it. But I think the only time where I saw him do anything that was not completely self-centered was when I think they initially, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, initially they resisted Crowley's move to um, ostracize Smith because they had they they liked him. But, you know, eventually they went along with it. But I think that there was, if I'm remembering correctly, Colin, there was some reluctance on Parsons' part to embrace Crowley's directive to ostracize Smith, even though it was to Parsons' benefit. But I could I could be remembering that wrong. I think you might be honest. I'm, I, I know more so with Crowley, where they weren't always on the same page with each other. This will definitely come up with Elrond Hubbard as it goes along, but... I think that while the two Crowley and Parsons had a mutual respect for each other, they did also clash every now and then just because I think they were so open with each other in their letters. Yeah, you know, um, I think, though, that, you know, you with Thelema, you had to uh, basically accept Crowley's word on everything in the end. That kind of like puts that with uh, the relationship with Parsons and Crowley. But Elrond Hubbard, he comes in around 1945, I believe it's around August. And it's probably best to mention is that this is before Scientology. Hubbard is more so regard for his charisma. And I think he was pretty good about keeping a lot of his skeletons in his closet under wraps at that point. He had so much of that charisma that he could kind of like embellish a lot of those stories, especially his stories of uh, being a naval officer in particular. It's around this point where he was quote unquote medically discharged from the Navy and was also a pulp writer. Alistair Crowley could see right through Hubbard, but Parsons was just completely transfixed by his charisma. And I think this is where Parsons and Hubbard, where they're kind of on the same page in the regard that they both have that distinct charisma where they can kind of charm their way with words in a lot of cases. Was there anything about Parsons and Hubbard I should keep in mind going forward with the relationship? Well, let's go forward because this is when you start to get into uh, the secret history of Twin Peaks. So let's see where you're going. There's obviously, this is just the beginning of a very important and long story. So yeah, go right ahead. This is around not only the introduction for Jack Parsons, but also L. Ron Hubbard. It's a letter from Nixon to General Twining, where Tammy, she talks about how she deems it as real, but she can't find an existing copy or transcript in the official files. And it talks about how L. Ron Hubbard did end up meeting Jack Parsons in August of 1945. Uh, and then also about uh, Hubbard, how he talks about the parsonage. 
and uh, he, how he visited when he had very little money. And he even discovered Thelema because of his visit to the parsonage. Hubbard said that local authorities would frequently visit the premises. And then there was also a lot of other factors that some of it might be deemed outlandish, but just the wild occultic parties that they'd have. Uh, it would naturally raise a lot of uh, a lot of noise and a lot of reports. I think the one of the ones I heard, and I presume this was outdoors, where there were women, possibly even pregnant women, that would have to jump through fire nine times. Admittedly, I don't know how nine fits in numerically with the rituals relating to Thelema, but I believe that there's something to that. But I think Hubbard, his ultimate takeaway is that he doesn't concern himself a prude, but he does deem that this stuff was pretty wild, even by his standards. Was there anything about the parsonage and how they handled themselves that I should keep in mind? Well, I think that Mark Frost... There was speculation that in real life that Hubbard went to the government with information on Parsons. So that was not totally made up at all. I don't know if Nixon was involved in that or not, but there certainly was speculation that Hubbard was going behind Parsons back to, uh, you know, report him to, to uh, as a security risk. And the other part of that, again, and I don't want to jump ahead, and I don't know if you talk about this later, was that those, um, I guess... Mark does get into it later, but, you know, Hubbard was uh, involved in some of those experiments that he was doing, they were doing out in the desert. It does seem right that he would end up reporting this in the latter days of like the 40s. I was thinking about it as I was reading is that Hubbard is pretty notorious for lying like a rug at any given moment. So I kind of joked to myself as I read his parts in The Secret History is that this is the most honest he's ever been in his life consistently. And the thing is that in the case of uh, Nixon, at the time he was a congressman, he was very anti-communist. He was very like one of the big names, um, maybe not right under Joe McCarthy, but he was a pretty big name in the Red Scare. I think he even got a Democrat around the early 50s, basically deplatformed by associating that her with being communism. So this, it probably is fiction. But I got to give Mark Frost like tremendous credit because all of it aligns pretty well. Yeah, well, Mark is uh, you know not only a great writer, but I think he's also an amazing researcher. But in the interest of full disclosure, I think we should say, at least from my research, the only reference I've, I, I said that that he didn't, Mark didn't totally invent this idea of, of Hubbard going to the government behind Parsons' back to report this, him as a security risk. But in fairness, we should say that where I saw that at least was that, that it was the Church of Scientology, I think in the 60s, so significantly later, that issued the press statement saying that Hubbard had been sent as an undercover agent by the Navy to subvert Parsons' uh, cult or branch of uh, religion, his kind of black magic or whatever, and save Sarah. So this is coming from the Church of Scientology, which is, you know, not the most reliable source and clearly, I think, was being issued in uh, an effort to disassociate Hubbard from Parsons and his black magic. So, you know, I, that may very well be revisionist history, but, you know, Mark's not claiming to be, uh, he, I think what he was doing was looking for the most interesting uh, stories that fit into his theme and Parsons, because of his interaction, Parsons by himself, let alone his, intera his interaction with all these famous historical figures like Hubbard and Crowley. And later on, you'll see Joseph McCarthy in there. And so I think Mark was just looking for hooks. So I think it's more than likely that the idea of Hubbard going to the government to report on Parsons was probably not true. It was probably just an attempt by the Church of Scientology and stealing Sarah was probably just an attempt by the Church of Scientology to clean up Hubbard's image, would be my guess. Oz, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I didn't really think of the latter part, admittedly. To kind of go on, and this is 
again, through Hubbard's notes in the secret history. In post-World War II, Parsons was somewhat removed from the day-to-day operations at JPL when World War II was over. And then uh, Hubbard deemed him as, uh, by nature, as a quote-unquote amateur at heart. And that his core group of engineers and scientists, that actually he would refer to his early scientific works as alchemical elixirs, which would actually be also known as fuel. One interesting fact is that Tammy, she does talk about how the house, the parsonage in particular, was built by Arthur Fleming, one of Caltech's early benefactors. And to coincide with the Twin Peaks mythos, the house is built with lumber that came from Twin Peaks. It also became the headquarters for Thelema during Parsons' rituals is that he would dress in a flowing robe, a fez-like headdress, and an albino python draped around him while his guests were at home. Not that I thought it was like a, a lie or anything that was uh, misinformation, but it is pretty interesting that that does seem like it was confirmed that that's how he would dress up. Also, it's probably a good time as any that when he started to bring guests to his home, he would do this thing where I believe it was in a newspaper where he would put out basically listings for people to for tenants to stay. The main criteria was must not believe in God. And uh, you think of how just basically far out there that would be in the subsequent decades onward. But in the 1940s, that must have been a pretty unique way of definitely attracting his tenants, but also certain detractors as well. Was there anything I should keep in mind about the tenants once they started moving into the parsonage? Well, you know, at the risk of alienating a big chunk of your audience, don't forget it was California. So, (laughs) you know, I lived there for two years and uh, there were a lot of, you know, California has always attracted people uh, who uh, have alternative ways of viewing the world. So, you know, um, and the other thing I would just say in reference to what the, uh, not not specifically to that, but you mentioned the tie-in to Twin Peaks with the lumber. I mean, that's something that Mark Freely does a few times with the green ring that Parsons is wearing, seen wearing, and the waterfall out in the desert in Pasadena. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but there's certainly a tie to Twin Peaks there. And then also the whole chanting of the poem. So he drops in these things from, you know, here and here and there that tie the story of Parsons back to the story of the narrative of Twin Peaks or the mythology of Twin Peaks. Mentioning California in particular, I think the reason why I was uh, had, for lack of a better term, a hang-up for is that I believe it was around this point, definitely by the 50s, where California was a little more of an explicitly conservative point. That was around post-World War II when we had like the suburban homes that were cropping up, because it is definitely far more progressive now, but I believe it was very much like a red state around that time. Well, there are still pockets of California. I mean, look at McCarthy, who somehow keeps getting elected, but there are pockets. And I mean, Ronald Reagan uh, came out of California. So there are pockets of California. But I think that, you know, places like Los Angeles and San Francisco and Pasadena is certainly in the Los Angeles area. I don't know that those were ever I could be wrong again, Colin, but I don't I don't know that those were ever pockets of conservatism or reactionaryism. I know that clearly, you know, there was a connection to the uh, movie industry, which I think drew more progressive or tolerant people who had, you know, more uh, creative minds and more inclined to live outside the box, so to speak. So, and that's the really the area that we're talking about, the Pas- that Pasadena area is, is really part of the Los Angeles metropolitan region. So, I don't know. No, that's a good point. Um, no, I looked at it in a broad stroke in Middle East. So I think when you bring up Pasadena in particular, I think you're uh, you're onto something. It's also probably good to mention is that, uh, and we did bring up a little briefly, is that when Hubbard was at the Parsonage, he had his own room upstairs and it had cross swords, tarot cards, pagan symbology, and all of which were probably displayed. 
And also, there was an altar worshiping Pan. That's like you were saying before, is that Jack Parsons would recite the uh, Ode to Pan poem. Uh, and then moving on to a recording. This is a recording that L. Ron Hubbard had about Jack Parsons without Parsons' knowledge. And it takes place in 1949, where they bring up how it's been a year since Aleister Crowley's death. Hubbard thought it was heroin that ended up killing Aleister Crowley. But Parsons says that Crowley was drugs. Parsons would go on to explain Thelema is that he says that um, alchemy isn't only about chemistry or turning base metals to gold. The medieval philosophers and alchemists knew this. Even Isaac Newton knew it, but their knowledge was lost until Crowley brought it back. You see, alchemy actually speaks to the internal processes and a radical revolution in our spiritual development, transforming the base metal of primitive man to the gold of an enlightened soul. Rockets and magic are about breaking through animal boundaries of space and time and hold us back from realizing our potential. Either, maybe both, will someday take us to the moon and stars beyond. I truly believe that. Magic is just the name we always give to things we don't yet understand. That kind of like sets a pretty good precedent of uh, whether it's fictional or not, about how Parsons was confident about how alchemy would not only help them throughout World War II, but he was looking at a long game in terms of what we would do, like, you know, reaching to the moon. Was there anything about that with Parsons that you wanted to bring up? I think when you're dealing with people like Hubbard and Parsons and Crowley, that you're people you're dealing with people who somewhere along the line became unhinged, right? But with uh, you know, with the differences with Parsons is that he actually pioneered something that had real-world scientific application. And so whereas, you know, Crowley and Hubbard, that's not really the case. You know, they don't have any tangible scientific materialistic accomplishments as far as i know that you can point to so as crazy as you are tend to think that parsons was and and i mean i think he was crazy don't get me wrong but you know i'm throwing around terms of terms like crazy i think he was unhinged and, and i think that he was dangerously so but people also said that about him with respect to his beliefs about the possibility of rocket science so he at least did accomplish that and and so that kind of i think makes him a little bit more complex than these other guys. I mean, I don't know about Hubbard. I'd have to do some more research into him, but Crowley and um, Parsons also were notorious drug users. So they were, who knows how much of the time they were spent hallucinating versus how much of the time, you know, they were uh, grounded in reality. And I certainly think that there's a tendency among drug users to think that any uh, catharsis that they have uh, or any edification that they have while under the influence of an hallucinogenic drug or, or, or some sort of you know, mind-altering drug is is like truth, you know, like, wow, this is truth. And, and I think that, in fact, it's probably the exact opposite. So, but just that, you know, Parsons is a little bit different from these other guys, but I think they all, there were drug issues. And I think Parsons was just, it's, it's just interesting because I think he was kind of, I, I hate to be reductivist, but I thought he was kind of he was crazy. I think he was unhinged. And and yet, you know, he did, he does have among his accomplishments, this very practical development or, or uh, invention or whatever you want to call it. So you can't dismiss him the way you might be inclined to dismiss Crowley as like the beast or the like the most wicked man in the world or things like that. And Hubbard as this huckster who uh, invented, a, again, you know, I think any religion looks weird out from, out, from the outside, but 
who invented this religion that most people think of as extremely unhinged. And um, But Parsons did make this contribution to science, so he's different. I was thinking about what you said about there's a certain practicality to Parsons, because even though dancing and chanting to the Ode to Pan, that wasn't really everyone's cup of tea when he was working at JPL. Apparently, all of his co-workers said that he was always just as professional as can be when he was working, regardless of how little sleep he got. He was always like as cautious as he could be because after years of uh, working with rocketry, he knew just the risk that would be taken. And he just wanted to make sure that it was like basically as safe an environment in terms of his work days uh, and just how dedicated he was to his craft and be being sure it was done as professionally as possible. Well, Colin, I think this is where you really have to um, be careful because I think that, you know, history again is told by the survivors. And a lot of that, I think I may be wrong, but a lot of that, those comments came uh, after his death. And, and there's a, a relevance to that that will, will come out. But it's like when I was a newspaper reporter and somebody say got somebody committed a crime or somebody got killed in the in the commission of a crime or something like that we'd get sent out to interview the relatives or the neighbors and they'd always say oh you know he was oh he's like the last person in the world who would ever think would do something like this he was so normal and you just don't know how trustworthy those comments are and they're certainly filtered by events and so what i'm saying is that group wasn't called the suicide squad for nothing and you've already talked about blowing up toilets and all these things and so i don't know how much of that is it's a problem with history you know if you're not there you have to take other people's words for things and one thing i found out mark givens and i found out with the, our book about hazel drew was there's many different versions of history and you know it's almost impossible to really know what's true and what isn't true and you just do the best you can but i don't know i i'm not sure i believe that he was careful but anyway go ahead that was one thing, and, uh, you know, of course we'll get to that when we get to his death, but um, that's actually something I've thought of back and forth in terms of the reliability of it. To shift back to um, Hubbard and Parsons, this is still the recording where Parsons doesn't realize that he's being recorded, is that Parsons, he ends up looking at the Pan statue, and that's when he uh, recites the Fire Walk With Me poem, and then he talks about how he feels the spirit in the wood. Hubbard, he actually kind of, I think this is around the point where he notices that there's the ring on his finger. This is also a good time, Zanny, to talk about like where we feel about the ring and how we view it in the Twin Peaks mythos and how it fits in with Jack Parsons in particular. And also, of course, the uh, spirits in the wood as well. A lot of people were concerned about or, or upset about in the secret history about things that diverged from the Twin Peaks mythology as it had been established. And I could understand that if they're talking about things maybe about some of the stuff with Norma and her mom and, and stuff like that. But one thing that when I was doing conversations with Mark Forrest that Mark talked to me about, and, and this is something I totally agree with. I think that there's no way that there's going to be one mythology of Twin Peaks because there are two creators. And whereas sometimes they work together, sometimes they didn't. And sometimes David Lynch, for example, would throw out what Mark or Harley or Bob wrote and just do whatever he wanted. And I don't think David Lynch at any time ever, I could be wrong, I'm not David Lynch, I'm not inside his mind, felt compelled to follow the mythology that the writing staff had come up with if he didn't feel like it fit his purposes. So David Lynch was going out there creating a parallel mythology or an alternate mythology. Why should the writers be any more obligated to David Lynch's mythology than he was to theirs? And yet I think that they did their best to accommodate it. That's why you have them taking the weird ending to the European pilot and 
integrating into the narrative of the story of the TV show as a dream. They had to find a way to do that. And, you know, I mean, the ending of the European pilot is different, which David Lynch came up with himself. is different from the ending of the TV series anyway. So I think, you know, Mark tried to integrate some of the mythology from the show into this. And, and sometimes it veered and sometimes it didn't. But I, I don't think as much. And I'm one of these people. I want there to be consistency and one mythology. But that's just never going to happen. And and I don't think there's any blame, more blame that goes if blame is the right word, that belongs to one party than the other. Twin Peaks fans have to accept the fact that there are alternate realities or or mythologies to the story of Twin Peaks. That's my comment on that. I'm glad you brought that up because I know that when Mark Frost, it was around, I would assume, October of 2016, he was promoting The Secret History on PBS. And he actually does bring that up about how him and Lynch weren't always on the same page and how that is a bit of a factor into the book because Mark Frost wrote this and the final dossier and approve the presence of the previous books to a certain degree, is that they made the great decision of never making a novel, but always making about like basically documents or what would be like real world in-universe text you could read. So they, they do allow that certain subjectivity, and it really does add to the idea that Lynch and Frost, that there is, like we said, there's not really one vision, is that even the two creators, they can be at odds with each other, but it still fits in one way or another with the text. After that recording, Major Briggs and Tammy, they bring up their insight and that they both mention about how Hubbard ran off with uh, Sarah, quote unquote, Betty Northrup. And uh, Briggs, he, he actually dismisses Parsons' occultist beliefs as mumbo jumbo. This is where he brings up that uh, Parsons uh, was under suspicion for selling American rocket program secrets to foreign governments. I think specifically in my research, it was Israel. And this is what led to uh, JPL severing ties with uh, Jack Parsons. And even though he, after he was being acquitted, and unfortunately, because his ties were severed, he had to sell the parsonage. He was struggling financially. He tried to sue Hubbard. He was relegated to working as a consultant on a military missile program. At least from what I could see, I know there's a subjectivity of Briggs talking about the mumbo jumbo for Parsons' occultic beliefs, but... Do you think that this fits in pretty well in terms of the research that you've done for Jack Parsons? Yeah, absolutely. He also, he, he was talking to Israel about work, but also a couple of other things. One was he also, toward the end there, when, when he was getting desperate for work, he also was making effects for film studios, for films. But the other part of that is he was associated with left-wing I think this is important. He was associated with left-wing causes. So he wasn't the first time that he was suspected of uh, being a quote-unquote treasonous or or uh, an enemy of the state. From what I've read, he did not join. He refused to join the Communist Party, but he, he was investigated. You know, I don't know if it was McCarthy or the House on American Activities Committee. And he, he did implicate others, to at least two other people who suffered for it. So he did quote-unquote name names. So yes, Israel was the problem later on in his life, but earlier he had come under suspicion because of his left-wing associations of being a communist and, and trying, you know, being interested in overthrowing the government. So other than that, I think you're right on the money. This is a part where I'm going to bring up how Parsons and Hubbard, this is their pursuit of the Scarlet Woman. I think just to kind of keep it separate for a moment, I'm going to bring up the real world history and then bring up the uh, Dougie Milford recording. Because the thing is that this is one, one of my first inconsistencies that I noticed from the secret history. Uh, so yeah, Hubbard helped Parsons in a 11-day ritual to manifest the Scarlet Woman, which was mostly recorded in his visions. This was around uh, February of 1946. And I should probably mention is that um, I think the reason why it was 11 days is that uh, Aleister Crowley, 
he viewed uh, 11 as a very significant number. And that's even a factor of why magic with a K became a thing under him, I believe. He just believed that there was something just highly important in terms of rituals and just like what it held. With that in mind, Marjorie Cameron came to his house not long after this ritual. Parsons would deem this as a success. And the thing is that in the secret history, they talk about how how the Roswell crash occurred a month later. But the thing is that the Roswell crash was in July of 1947. That's just like a major oversight through the lens of uh, Briggs slash Tammy. Did we want to divulge further into what this ritual entailed? Or did you think that was that was like a good enough observation or if you had more to add in terms of... Oh, that's of... a good observation. I mean, I think, you know, Mark might say that, uh, you know, I mean, you could say that this is just an excuse, but I think one of the things that he pointed out was that people make mistakes and maybe it was a deliberate mistake. I don't know. Maybe Tammy got it wrong and not Mark, but I don't know. That could just be, you know, an excuse. But I, he, he is a pretty exhaustive researcher. So that would be, that surprises me. The other thing about this ritual is that I I've read so many different, I think your point about Marjorie popping up right afterward is a really good point, because of course it made them all believe that more, uh, reinforce their beliefs. But I've read that he was trying to summon Babylon, the demon Babylon. I read that he was, they were trying to summon the moon child, which was the title of the Crowley book involving the lodges. So I've read different interpretations of what it was they were trying to summon in the desert. That would be a point I would make. I don't know if you found those differences as well, but, but I did. I'm glad you brought that up because um, a lot of this does go on with the Dougie Milford according to Secret History. I mean, I know this part is where it becomes clearly historical fiction, but this is the part where Dougie Milford, he meets Jack Parsons on December 3rd of 1949. As stated previously, Parsons was struggling financially. His good looks were starting to diminish around this point. Milford would pose as a left-wing journalist in particular. Parsons wanted to set the record straight uh, at a nearby coffee shop. Jack, he talks about his complex relationship with Helen, moving on to Sarah, not really disclosing anything about it. He divulges a little further about me and Elrond Hubbard about how Betty hated Hubbard initially, but like fell for his spell. Parsons thought Hubbard understood him better. And then also Hubbard would become a member of the Lima, wanting to know everything. And this would go on for two plus years. He would also talk about the ritual in the desert, how it was a perfect medium. Also, he was calling the Zeta Reticulons, and they are, on a broad stroke, great aliens that would visit Earth. And more specifically, they were tall Nordic types that may or may not be interdimensional beings and also kind of pertain to the Lemurians, which was definitely a huge thing for Mark Frost, even for a show he wanted to make back in the 80s on NBC. Milford, he thinks that because of all the stuff that Parsons is talking about during this interaction is that he thinks he might be on drugs. Parsons asks if Dougie's been to Roswell. Of course, Dougie has been there. He was a central part leading up to this. And Parsons does elaborate on a ritual around the Jornada del Muerto, which is near the White Sands, and Jornada del Muerto means uh, journey of a dead man. And then Milford and Parsons, they end up confirming that this is where the bomb was tested. And then also the ritual was the working of Babylon, calling forth the elemental during this time. Parsons' wife would pull up with her car just conveniently on time. Milford then uh, meets one of Parsons' former colleagues who would take Douglas Milford to the Arroyo Seco, which happens to be right near the JPL labs. I should point out that the Arroyo Seco is uh, loosely translates to uh, dry stream in Spanish. And then also he talks about how JPL tested their experiments here in the Halcyon days. And then uh, Devil's Gate uh, contained seasonal flood and possibly even the face of the devil. 
I do know there was a lot of information to sink in, but was there anything with the Dougie Milford recording, barring the obvious historical fiction, that stood out to you? Clearly, I think there's an effort here to tie in a lot of different things that are going on, like with the UFOs and, and aliens and interdimensional travel. I think that, you know, Mark is taking a lot of license here to sort of tie in a lot of different themes that he's been dealing with. I think that when I spoke to him, if I'm remembering correctly, I think he's more inclined to believe that these uh, visions that people have or these sightings that people have are more likely to be, and I think you said Steven Spielberg felt the same thing, that they were, and I, I know people, ufologists, who think this also, that they're more likely to be, um, he said, interdimensional, like time travelers from the future or the past who are basically coming back here for some reason. So he even, I think, is less to, inclined to believe that they are of alien nature than they are of, of another from another dimension then and so that was kind of interesting to me but i think he's just trying to tie in a different he's, i think he's taking poetic license to sort of tie in the different there's a lot of ufology in twin peaks obviously in season two and i think he's just trying to tie a lot of things in together here i feel like that if you're going to write something about historical fiction if there's one part where po or one part where poetic license does come into play it's definitely stuff with dougie milford but this does actually also lead me into the Whore of Babylon, which I think this is, I think this is only the second thing where it seems like it was potentially wrong. And I think this is actually on Mark Frost's part to do it deliberately. The Whore of Babylon photo that we see in the Sick of History is actually the Bernie relief. And it's also known as the Queen of the Night relief. Uh, it's a, a Mesopotamian terracotta plaque. What it really is, is that it's either a Rush Kegel, Queen of the Underworld, or possibly even Ishtar, which is the goddess of love, war, and fertility. I think that's a really interesting point because when you talk about the story of worlds, I'm thinking of uh, obviously the Arush Kegel, Queen of the Underworld, definitely pertains to a lot of what Parsons and Hubbard were aiming for in terms of their 11-day ritual. But also in the case of Ishtar, that love and war, that maybe there could be a mix of the two, for lack of a better term, or maybe a misinterpretation on their part. I was wondering if you thought of anything on this inconsistency in the secret history. You know, I think that's a, a great piece of research on your part. Um, I will say to you that there were a few areas where Mark was reluctant to talk to me, either A, on the record, or B, at all. And I think one of them was this area of trying to affix responsibility or purpose is probably the better word, purpose to the inaccuracies that uh, came. Now, whether that was defensiveness or whether that was, for lack of a better term, a Lynchian thing of not uh, sustaining the mystery behind it. I don't know. And, you know, you could, depending on how cynical you are, you could choose A or B, but he wasn't going to get into an area, uh, the area of like addressing apparent inconsistency by apparent inconsistency. He did say again, you know, that his research was extensive and that some of those were deliberate because uh, at least some of those were deliberate because he was telling history that was being filtered through people who, you know, people like Doug Milford were not always the most reliable narrator so that some of that was deliberate and maybe it was there for people like you colin to uh track down the way you did that so i don't know the answer to that and to be honest with you that was not even one that i had picked up on but uh it's certainly great research on your part oh thank you when i first read the secret history i kind of just read it from cover to cover so I kind of just looked at the obvious inconsistencies, but uh, when you look at it through it little by little, uh, when you do a reread, and not just like, you know, from beginning to end, but just like little pieces, like whether you want to do like, you know, of course, the Jack Parsons segment, or even stuff like the Andrew Packard case files that 
a lot of that stuff begins to really stand out as you kind of read between it more. And like I was saying, is that, you know, with your book Conversation with Mark Frost, even if he's, uh, you know, is not willing to discuss certain things, they're just like a certain, I don't know if understands the right word, but they're just some that almost starts to ring true to you in terms of what Mark Frost was trying to do and how he wanted you to do your own research and not to impose like any interpretations, but to just encourage you to raise more questions than answers in a way that you feel is right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there is a lot in this book and in Twin Peaks that should not be taken, you know, that there's more, there's subtext and there's multiple levels of meaning and there's mystery and there's, uh, I think a whole, the whole issue of unreliability that could be looked at different ways. I mean, to take a look at uh, the secret diary and there's, there's inconsistencies in there or take a look at the autobiography and there's tremendous inconsistencies there. And you can always take a very sort of pedestrian look at it and say, well, you know, they didn't know the full history of Cooper and uh, Wyndham Earl when uh, they wrote that book and then when they got around to doing it they decided not to be tied to the exposition in the book or you could say the things not being what they seem i mean obviously that is a a recurring theme of twin peaks and maybe you know how much of it was done on purpose and how much of it wasn't you know we'll never know and i think that that's that's perfectly okay with both uh, mark frost and david lynch maybe not with us and your listeners and readers but it's perfectly okay with them this is a bit of a broad stroke for all the books but i do think of it more so as uh like i was saying before expanding off of it being basically these are all in-universe documents i also view that not only is there a person's subjectivity but also uh, most if not all these have been compromised one way or another that's kind of how my view is that like these are things that have been altered like for example the obvious one being like the secret diary where the pages are torn out which would kind of probably hide pertinent details or like why there's so many blatant uh what looks like plot holes in the secret history, but there's actually a larger narrative as it goes on. But yeah, that's a, that's a thing that I do understand why people have problems with, but I actually embrace the uh, the inconsistencies. Well, I mean, I think that's smart, Colin, because we're never going to know. It's just become part of the mythology. And in a way, it's kind of cool. You know, I mean, it's more mystery. And then on the other hand, let's say that they weren't deliberate. I mean, so what? You know, I mean, nobody's I'm not going to get and people got really upset about it, particularly that stuff with Norma and Ed. And I'm thinking of uh, Norma's mothers. But, you know, in the end, it will go if I were to write that FAQ book now. I mean, so much of that book was devoted to inconsistencies. And, you know, what did they mean? And, and, you know, that's the way we're going to have to deal with them. And in a way, it's kind of fun. So why not embrace it? To shift back to the uh, Devil's Gate in uh, Arroyo Seco, the Tongva Indians, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, they called that spot the Hellgate, and they believed it to be a portal to the underworld. And then Tammy reiterates that uh, that Crowley was encouraging Parsons to, quote, unquote, make use of it, that it was one of the seven gates to hell. And that uh, Parsons used all sorts of explosive sciences to, quote unquote, open up the gate, which I think that if we're thinking about the nuclear bomb in part eight, it just adds that extra nefarious nature because there's a lot about deserts and nuclear bombs, specifically in this segment, that definitely ties, uh, in my opinion, to everything about that nuclear bomb. And I think more so what Frost got from it. So, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, this was a part that really added a lot to what was already this one of the highlights of season three for me i guess to kind of continue on with milford and slash project grudge is that uh, i can just uh say one thing about that is that um again uh, along the same vein of what we've been talking about there has been speculation that some of the inconsistencies may have been because they wrote the script mark went one way david went the other way 
and maybe Mark didn't know about some of the changes that Lynch would be making uh, on set, because obviously Lynch is notorious for, for doing that. I witnessed the, see the finale of season two. But so I talked to him a lot about part eight, and he said it was all, he said his words, I think his exact words was something to the effect, it's all there on the page. So part eight and, and that whole idea of, you know, Sarah and the frog moth and the nuclear explosion, he knew all of that. There's nothing, as much as, you know, Lynch is credited for that, and of course, obviously, Lynch uh, visualized it and it was brilliant, but that was all there in the script that they wrote together. So whatever references you see to that in the book, Mark knew what he was doing with respect to season three. I agree. Um, I guess think of the secret history in mind, the almost like the sociopolitical connotations of the nuclear bomb, even put aside the occultic aspect, is that I believe Frost, I think it was on when he did the podcast Films to be Buried with earlier this year, I think he mentioned about how now there's this thing that could just like wipe out the world 17 times over and how it's like this threat that they're going to live with from that point on. And that's the thing is that part eight, there's so much about that nuclear bomb aspect that it's hard to know where to pull the thread, whether you look at it through occultic lens, sociopolitical lens, the esoteric lens, you know, there, there's just a lot to unpack there. Well, that's true of the whole series. I mean, if you whole, if you look at the whole, what was the origin of the bomb? You know, whether it was all about some external forces, like, um, and I think clearly they're saying it wasn't, but uh, it's just a another metaphor for what they were dealing with with Bob, and 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 you know, was Bob something inside of humanity, or was Bob something that came? Of, you just said the use the word occult. You know, I think that's something they play with the whole time. I think they. Mark Frost, anyway, clearly comes down on the side that it is something inside humanity. And I think that Lynch does that as well in, in Fire Walk With Me. But when I said to uh, Mark Frost, doesn't part eight sort of um, indicate that it's coming from somewhere else? You had a fireman sending Laura out and, and the experiment giving birth to Bob and so on. And his answer was not that satisfactory to me. I mean, I think I even asked him to explain it, but he said something like that just was a alternative explanation so i don't know because I, I really think that if you and if you talk to him i think both of them are saying that bob was clearly leland so i don't know anyway go ahead i didn't mean to interrupt. the one thing i thought was interesting and i'm surprised that he actually outright said this this is still the same podcast films be buried with where someone asked about the bob and leland dynamic the big thing that mark frost talked about was how evil is ultimately a lack of empathy i think about that where of course like with a bob orb about how the nuclear bomb set that off how much of that because when i do rewatches of twin peaks i always kind of go in chronological order and i always start with part eight because even though of course it's like well into season three there's just so much of it that permeates like all three seasons fire walk me to a certain extent depending on how you feel because that's, you know, explicitly Lynch and Frost is mostly removed, but also about how, you know, because if we're going with Mark Frost and how he approaches Bob, is that you see a lot of that in how he approaches Bob in The Secret History as well. So I do think of the lack of empathy when we bring up like the true evil that surrounds anything like Bob or the nuclear bomb. Yeah, you know, I think Mark, I think he's intrigued by occultism. I mean, occultism. He was trying to, you know, he went through a period in uh, his own life where he was like reading a lot about new age type stuff and theosophy and so on. And I think he's intrigued by that. But I think ultimately, uh, if you pinned him down, he would say that, you know, it's humanity that we have to worry about, not external, not the devil, for example, but the devil is inside of us. You know, that's what I think. I think he's very much of a humanist, and I think that that's what he would say. But I think, you know, he has this intellectual fascination with this whole, with all this occult stuff. 
I agree on all fronts. To go on with everything with uh, Milford and Project Grudge, this anonymous source, when they're at the uh, Devil's Gate, he tells uh, Milford about Parsons' uh, Thelema rituals as an attempt to summon the gods of Babylon, which I put in parentheses, the mother of abominations into human form, which I think probably loosely pertains to the Scarlet Woman, but Milford asks why Parsons would want to provoke the end of the world, and the man is unsure, but he does mention Hubbard helping him, tying back to the ritual that we were mentioning. Milford elaborates on Hubbard and Betty leaving with him around, I believe is in the in Cigarette History says 1945, Briggs, he brings up in his archives notes about how he shows disgust for Hubbard and how many of the tenants uh, who would work for the parsonage would end up working alongside with Hubbard. Tammy goes further into this about uh, Thetans, which are ancient aliens dwelling beneath the volcanoes, which I believe that was something that L. Ron Hubbard ripped off Richard Shaver's uh, Lemurians. Uh, Milford, this is around the point where he thinks back to when he talked with Jack Parsons, where Marjorie Cameron, when she came to pull up, he realized that that is Parsons' second wife. And then uh, Milford and the man also realized that he was trying to open a second gate to summon the Moonchild. Under, I believe, Dougie Milford's transcripts, it says, Moonchild is both the title and subject of a 1923 novel by Crowley about the battle of two lodges of black and white uh, magicians over an unborn child who may or may not be the Antichrist. Crowley apparently tried to conduct this ritual himself on numerous occasions earlier in his own life without success, which served Parsons' inspiration. Before I go too much further, um, I don't want to overload with any more information, but was there anything about this part with Dougie Milford and the, and the second man bringing up all this stuff about Oreo Secco and about the Moonchild? You know, not really. I mean, other than obviously the um, reference to the lodges, I never heard anybody, any of the writers, refer to the Moonchild as, uh, you know, even going back to the uh, original series as as an influence on them. And I also, and I know that Mark said that he tried to read Crowley, and Crowley is a horrendous writer, and uh, so he, you know, he just couldn't do it. It was like he didn't stick with it. And um, and I, I even asked him about the Devil's Guard book, and he said he didn't know that. But what also is interesting to me is that I have seen this once before somewhere, and I never, but not a lot of places. And I don't know whether to. Uh, you mentioned the Scarlet Woman, and and I've read somewhere that Diane's uh, red wig is a reference to Marjorie Cameron, who had red hair. But I don't know that's true at all. I mean, I don't think it's a direct reference anyway, but I know I, I thought that was an interesting point. We didn't really talk much about the Scarlet. You know, there isn't much. The Scarlet Woman, I guess, is kind of like, you know, an interesting character to me. I, I don't know that I've seen that much about her, but I had never thought that she was a reference to Marjorie Cameron. Yeah, that's never something that I thought of, but I do think of how, and again, I know that uh, Lynch and Frost, they're not always on the same page, but I know that at least with Lynch, the color red is something very deliberate, usually used in a nefarious sense. But to come back to Mark Frost and uh, books that were influenced in the original series, I think it was Harley Payton. I think he said some effect of they had a lot of these books, some of which would pertain the occult that they would use as reference as they would write along, I think more so for the second season. And I think that it wasn't really anything directly from Parsons or Crowley, but it was stuff that was inspired and built off of it. So, yeah, I think that at least in some cases, um, I don't want to say it was passive knowledge because there's some about the black and white lodges that seem very deliberate. But I did think that was an interesting thing to point out. Right. Yeah, no, it definitely makes you wonder. Like I said, The Devil's Guard is the book that typically people reference uh, by Talbot Monday. And uh, I did specifically ask Mark, I asked him about that and about uh, Alistair Crowley. So 
I don't know if he didn't know what Harley and Bob were reading or not, but he didn't uh, really uh, point to either of those as influences. And like I said, Crowley is, I don't know if you've read them, but, or tried to read them. Like I tried to read Moonchild and it's just really hard to read. I mean, it's just really bad writing. So I don't know how anyone could get through that book, but if you did, you know, more power to you. Devil's Guard is a much better book and it's much more interesting book. And it also has the two lodges and the Doug buzz. And again, you know, maybe that was one of the books that Harley was referring to. I don't, I don't know. When you think of like with Aleister Crowley, you think of the influence he had on like the Beatles or Led Zeppelin. So you're, you're talking about how it's like he's a horrendous writer, how anyone can get through it. I guess when you think about his writing on its own, it is crazy to think of how many people really did power through it and get a lot out of it. Because, yeah, I mean, that's a thing to say for another time, but it is pretty wild to think of how much people got out of it, even in the midst of uh, poor writing. But think about that, because that was one of the points I wanted to raise with you. We're talking basically here, let's say about three people, Hubbard, Parsons, and Crowley. For some reason, I think you have to conclude that rocket science apart, that the one who's had the most lasting or enduring influence would be Hubbard, right? Would you agree with that? Uh, uh, yeah. It... Okay, so why, though? Why? I mean... Uh, Hubbard was also, he was a pulp writer. He was not a good writer. Parsons is basically unremembered, other than unless you're in rocket science. And Crowley is considered, I mean, Hubbard, you know, is largely considered by mainstream society a uh, fringe figure as well. But he's got, you know, a significant following. And his ideas are no less, more or less bizarre to me anyway, if you read them, then, I mean, I think that there's the general, um, the mainstream accepted norm about him is that he was a huckster who was trying to pass off this science fiction as reality. And um, why is it that I don't think Crowley's influence is anywhere near as um, pervasive as um, Hubbard. I think Parsons may have been like maybe the most sincere of the three and just like had lost touch with reality. And this is all me speaking very subjectively, whereas I think there was definitely a huge element of hucksterism in the other two. I don't know that the other two believed what they were, at least again, from my research, that they believed what they were trying to pass off. Whereas I think Parsons maybe did, you know, I don't know. But I don't think Crowley, I guess what precipitated this, this comment was, I don't think Crowley has had anywhere near the influence that Hubbard has had. And again, of, of the three, it's Hubbard, and I don't really know why. I'll say that Crowley would be a bit secondary in this, but I think with Parsons, there's a certain practicality behind him in terms of rocketry, how it helped with World War II and going to the moon. Hubbard, I believe he had a quote that said, and I'm completely paraphrasing this, I think it said that if every book was destroyed in the world, I want to have an impact that will just be basically beaten into like basically the uh, the culture of the universe. And I think that's kind of what it was, is that Hubbard was just someone who just kind of always was an opportunist, who always found ways to weasel his way in. He ended up creating a religion. Uh, and I think he even said that creating a religion would prompt like a lot of money. And he died being worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And of course, I know that for, uh, for a lot of people, of course, people who aren't into Scientology, it's like a running joke at best. Uh, sometimes it's like a nefarious cult at worst. But everyone knows who he is one way or another. And I think that's why his uh, reputation, while not good to the general public, supersedes uh, Crowley and Parsons. Yeah, well, I, I think you're, you're right in terms of influence. I don't think any one of them to the general public has a good reputation. But again, I think what distinguishes Parsons is, again, and this is all just impressions I get from reading, because I didn't obviously know any of them. But I get the sense that Crowley was an opportunist in the same way that you just described Hubbard, 
Whereas I, I think Parsons may actually have believed what he was doing, but I could be wrong. And so there was an element of, I think, authenticity to Parsons that the other two didn't have. And, and you know, I don't know if that worked against him in some way or what, but just an interesting thing to look at. I absolutely agree. We can kind of move on to Milford, though. He does realize that uh, Parsons uh, attempted to... This is actually the inconsistency I was mentioned before, is that it's around this point where Milford realizes that Parsons attempted to su- summon the Scarlet Woman, how it occurred one week before the UFO crash in Roswell. And like I said, you know, we kind of debunked that in terms of how it was actually like a year and a half apart. But then Milford, he does also talk about how it reminds him of his 1927 incident with Andrew Packard, uh, or not, not Andrew Packard, but specifically when he sees the what are effectively UFOs early on in the book. He thinks back to that event as uh, as having, quote unquote, animalistic fear. Strange enough, Milford does sympathize with Parsons to some degree, but he also is the one uh, who ends up revoking his secur- security clearance and anything to do with the military and government. And then the next page, we have a FBI transcript where Parsons tells Nixon's that his re- religious beliefs is of individual freedom without interfering with the paths of others. And I think that's more so something in the realm of the do what thou wilt, like a loose way of saying it when you're in front of a congressman. And then to continue on with it is that Parsons believes that every person is a divine being through the balance of self, will, and love. And he deems these as being anti-fascist and anti-communist and effectively refers to being pro-American. To tie up this part, Briggs does talk about how the FBI had a 200-page file on him as the Red Scare was starting to take off. It seems like, you know, it's like we were saying before that uh, I believe it's around this point where uh, Briggs does bring up the uh, Parsons being a pyrotechnic for war films and also uh, how he was a mechanic in a hospital orderly. Um, Was there anything I should keep in mind in terms of what Parsons was doing during this point when he was being questioned for his ties? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, he did have a lot of friends who were communists, and he was, I think, asked to join the Communist Party. And I think that what you just quoted is exactly historically accurate as to why he uh, chose not to. He felt that was a abridgment of his philosophy of free will, and that that's why he made a conscious decision not to join. So that would be my only comment there. I will admit, I jumped a little ahead because those were from 1949, 1950. But to pedal back with the falling out of um, Hubbard and Parsons, this is around the part where Parsons, Hubbard, and Betty start a business venture called Allied Enterprises. Hubbard and Betty, they end up like getting together and they headed to Miami. They actually left and it was around, um, I think it was like within an hour after Parsons arrived to Miami. And then I believe that Parsons, he cast a spell and that this would prompt them to come back. Parsons would eventually lose Betty. Also, subsequently, he'd remove himself from the OTO and would sell his house. And this is around the point where he'd marry Marjorie. He was still talking to Crowley till his death of December of 1947. And then uh, him and Marjorie, they were planning to move to Mexico and then subsequently Israel. And this is where we get to the Milford report because uh, two days before Parsons' death, which would be June 15, 1952, Milford would find Parsons in an old carriage house on the Crookshank estate near the former Parsonage, which was at this point demolished. And uh, Parsons' looks have diminished even further uh, than his last time he saw him. And now uh, Parsons seemed to be very distracted and anxious. He had pictures of Marjorie around. He was, at least by Parsons' admission, uh, much in demand as a pyrotechnic consultant. 
Uh, Milford says that his at-home laboratory was not clean or well-maintained and how there's a strong chemical odor. Also, two boarders uh, who lived upstairs to help pay for the rent. And it was around this point where Parsons was still wearing the ring. Milford started taking more notes in the occultic items, uh, specifically the painted black devil's head on the wall. Parsons talked about how he was removed from the Church of Thelema in favor of private worship, but he was insisting on getting back to work just to get Dougie Milford, who was at this point still posing as a left-wing journalist. Parsons tells Milford about the upcoming trip to Mexico before he does leave. And it's around this point where Milford, he deems Jack Parsons as a security risk and thinks he's moving permanently. And he refers to his, uh, that he thinks Parsons is contacting foreign espionage agents. He doesn't divulge in Israel, but he does say that much. And then he does propose the idea of house arrest to prevent this. Put aside that this is historical fiction, was there anything about this interaction with Milford and Parsons that stood out to you? No, I mean, I think he's just trying to... Uh... First of all, you know, we should never forget that Doug, Doug Milford is not in any sense of the word a reliable narrator. We should always keep that in mind. I mean, if, if Mark wanted to pick a reliable narrator, he wouldn't have gone with Milford. But I think Mark, he's just trying to emphasize how much he's fallen and how, how hard times are for him. I think some of that stuff may also have come out. There's a book called Strange Angel by George Pendle, which is about the life of Jack Parsons, which is really good. And it starts off with his death and, and talks about those borders and also the trip to the impending trip to Mexico and um, the state of the uh, lab and, and all of that. So he may have been some drawing on that. And then also we didn't talk about how CBS, which is now Paramount Plus, made a TV series that ran for two seasons called Strange Angel, which I assume they adapted from Pendle's book that also is another look at Parsons' life. I do get the sense that he had some legitimately profound found feelings for Sarah and that he was legitimately hurt, not just by the fact that they took his money, but that she ran away with Hubbard. So he's a guy who was obviously having sexual relations with a lot of different women. He cheated on his first wife, but I do get the feeling that he had some, that this woman, Sarah, you know, was, you know, Helen's sister was, had some sort of majestic, and then, you know, he goes to the desert to try to uh, summon a replacement for her. So I had, did, did get the feeling that there was some profound, authentic, uh, emotional pull uh, on him from, by her. So uh, she seemed to be different from the others. But anyway, I just think that there, what's going on here is trying to uh, illustrate or emphasize how far he's fallen, you know, at this point in his life from, from when he was at the peak. One thing to mention about the CBS show is that I believe that the show, I don't know if they deemed it as being canceled or just, uh, or that it ended, but one of the things that I heard was that when they introduced L. Ron Hubbard, there was a major point of contention from like the Scientology community. Because the thing is that even though we kind of look at it as like just this fringe culty thing, that they do have this very distinct power because I think at this point they're worth a half billion dollars. And I think CBS just didn't want to deal with the ramifications of how they'd interpret Hubbard and how it would go against the grain of what they believed in. The other one that I thought was interesting is that since we're talking about Marjorie, is that I'm thinking back to uh, how she was basically summoned, if you will, if that's uh, if that's how people perceive it, but how this was the event, it would ultimately set off all the things that would lead to Parsons' downfall because it was around this point where he would end up uh, losing ties with JPL, he'd remove himself from the OTO, Sarah would run away with L. Ron Hubbard, his life went in a bad direction, his looks diminished. 
Do you think there's anything about that ritual that would lead to his subsequent demise? Or do you think it was just like sort of like a bad timing, if you will? You mean, uh, <laughs> do I think there was something uh, magical or occult-like that led to it? I think it was just a reflection of where he, where he was at that point. But I did want to say that I think that with respect, it, the show was officially canceled. But I think that if Scientology was to have any influence on the outcome of that show, I now again, Colin, I could be naive or wrong, but I don't think the fact that they're a multi-million dollar religion would have any bearing on it. I think what would have much more bearing on it would be like, let's say Tom Cruise called them up and said, you know what, I'm not going to make any more movies with Paramount if you do this. That I could see much more than just this. I don't think that this, I, you know, I could be wrong. I don't think that this religion is flexing uh, its muscle successfully as, and, and I know that there's been a lot of allegations of intimidation, but I don't think it's a successful lobbyist as just because of it, its wealth. I think if some congressman or some businessman was exposed to have caved to this religion that they would be more like a laughingstock than anything else. But I do think that if Tom Cruise called up and, and, and said something that that, because that's money to them. I mean, you know, if Tom Cruise is not going to make, I don't know if, if um, Top Gun was paramount or not, but if he were to call up and say, I'm not making Top Gun 4 or wherever they are with that, then that I think uh, would have an influence on them. Based on what I know from my years in Variety and the Pale Center for Media, <laughs> That, I think, would be devastating to them. That's actually a really good point, uh, bringing up Tom Cruise and him probably having more influence than the Church of Scientology, because you think of how successful Top Gun 2 was, how successful the Mission Impossible movies have been and will continue to be, that that is actually much more feasible. I think that when I was doing my research on L. Ron Hubbard, I know that to this day, which I think is 35, 36 years after his death, each of his homes that the Scientologists take care of they leave a new pair of pajamas top and bottoms for when they think of when he will return. So I guess I just kind of took that and thought of like where they would go in terms of seeing basically their idol being desecrated on like a television show. But I, like I said, I think that you're really on it with the uh, Tom Cruise part in, in particular. Yeah, that's just, again, you know, I spent four years at Variety, you know, which covers the industry. And then I worked at the Paley Center for all those years. And I know that what scares these people is money, uh, is commercial. Uh, when I was at Variety, uh, and a critic named Joe McBride, who wrote for us, wrote a piece about one of the Jack Ryan movies, you know, which had to do with the IRA. And uh, that Paramount complained about the review and Peter Bart, who was a former Paramount executive and was executive editor of Variety at the time, said Joe was never going to do another review of a Paramount film and uh, apologized to Paramount for it. So, you know, those studios, they have a lot of money and they have a lot of muscle. That's a really good point. But um, I think now, because uh, I think we've said pretty much everything but his death so far, for him, it was... I guess I'll go expand further, but it's considered an unexplained death on uh, June 17th of 1952. And the secret history, it does show that the LA Times on June 18th were announced on um, Parsons' death and then his mother's subsequent suicide and how Marjorie would end up fleeing to Mexico. Police, they would rule it out as an accident with the fulminate of mercury and how traces were found in a shattered coffee can, which I ended up looking up and I... At least that's some that has been circulating around. So I can't confirm or deny it, but that is some that I've seen coincide with the real world history and Mark Frost's secret history. And during the explosion, 
Parsons' right arm was atomized, both legs broken, uh, massive internal injuries, and the right side of his face destroyed, and I believe like even a hole through his face. And then Briggs deems it improbable that tenants would find him alive, but would, however, try to dispose his hypodermic needles before police came and even attempted to paint over the devil's head. It was around this time where papers discovered all of Parsons' occultic connections. His colleagues, uh, like I was saying before, they did insist that he was always takes his work seriously, regardless of personal life. But I think of what you said about how after someone's death, that's when these types of stories start to circulate around. But Briggs, he does consider that this was not accidental, as rumors suggest a second explosion was potentially planted bomb was in a crawl space below. And also the fact that uh, one of Parsons' closest friends wrote about him, who happened to be a sci-fi writer. So the quote is, Once a magician stands between two worlds, he's in danger of not belonging to either of them. In the end, Jack danced too close to the flames, and it cost him his life, whether he killed himself, was felled by an accident, or died at the hand of another is beyond the point. I believe Jack Parsons summoned a fire demon. There's already a lot to go through just like with Parsons' death on both ends, whether it's authority or or anecdotal. Uh, was there anything you had in mind about the real world or secret history aspects of Jack Parsons' death? Not really. I mean, I, you know, I tend to think it was pretty straightforward myself, but I'm, you know, you may find the evidence more compelling than I do that maybe it wasn't. But I, you know, because I was uh, writing this piece about the death of an actress named Inger Stevens, whose death was ruled a, a suicide back in 1970. And, you know, there's all these friends and relatives saying, oh, she couldn't have killed herself. She was so happy. She was getting ready to uh, promote a new show and she had plans for the weekend. And, you know, I, I just don't know if, uh, on the other hand, she had, you know, tried to commit suicide once before. She uh, allegedly, Burt Reynolds had just broken up with her. So I think that there's always going to be some speculation because people like mystery. But I don't know. I, I guess I was just inclined to think that it was accidental. I mean, he was planning. I, I, I don't know. I mean, what do you think, Colin? I've actually kind of gone back and forth, but I have entertained the, I would refer to as more unceremonious reasoning, is that you think of how how much his life has fallen, because I think it was around this point where he would like pay his last bits of money for hookers to continue with his sex magic during his private practices. And, you know, this has come a long way from the parsonage where, you know, it's not like, you know, his upbringing where he was wealthy, albeit bullied, but still wealthy. That still carried over once JPL was founded. But the thing is that he was in a bad spot for at least five years. You think of like how there's those high highs. Now it's a low low that I haven't ruled out the idea that maybe it was like an accident. Like maybe maybe something went awry because I know, like we said, Dougie Milford is not deemed as a reliable narrator, but I do think it's interesting that they do point out about how his workspace was not well-maintained. But then I also think about how how much he may or may not know about, you know, working so close to the government or all these ties that he has, especially since we're talking about anything pertaining to selling information to Israel. So I have also considered that maybe uh, a second planet bomb is also feasible. I never want to be wishy-washy, but I also don't want to just why and just like have a just a clear-cut answer when i don't so i those are the two i seem to go back and forth on 
Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's fun to speculate, but um, you know, I don't know. I, I really don't know, and it's uh, there. You know, you could come up with a probably an interesting argument argument for any one of the possible solutions, and uh, it's just a good thing to speculate about. There's so many possible explanations for any option you choose. I never read anything that may convinced me that he had, you know, again, and, and this just could be my reaction that convinced me that he went through a very up and down life. There were, I don't think there was ever any, I ever read anything that convinced me that he was capable of, of self-awareness is word because you figure if he was self-aware, he might've had some notion of how um, insane some of the things that he was doing was, but I don't know that he, uh, I don't know. It's, it's certainly uh, a good, there have been biographies written about him and I don't know how the one with that I mentioned, Strange Angel, didn't go that, you know, wasn't a really deep dive into the causes, uh, into the possible causes of, of it. They deal with it a little bit and they say that, you know, some people didn't buy into it, but I, I never saw a really deep exploration. And at this point, it may even be too late to do that, but there's no way I'm ever are going to know and it's fun to not know so there you go i said this in my meriwether lewis episode but i think of how both meriwether lewis and jack parsons they suffer these for like a better term ambiguous deaths where we can't confirm or deny what it is and i think that what he does uh what he sees in those he brings to twin peaks as well because all these things uh with both deaths i mentioned and twin peaks in general is that it finds a way of raising more questions than answers, but it's always a way where you want to kind of like learn more, even though you know you can never confirm it. So I do think of how unique that parallel is just in terms of how I at least view the show and uh, compared to how I speculate on the deaths for Lewis and Parsons. Yeah, it's just a ton of fun too. I mean, you know, there's scores of figures we uh, do this with. I mean, look at the book that the project that drew... Uh, Mark and David together to begin with, which was um, Marilyn Monroe, the goddess, you know, so people are still speculating about what exactly happened there and, and what the extent of the Kennedy involvement, which was what cost them the project by you know, Mark's script uh, suggesting that Bobby Kennedy was not involved in killing her, but in, I can't remember whether he it was just covering it up or whatever, that the film studio, because Ethel Kennedy was on the board, rejected. But people just love to kind of speculate about that. And, uh, you know, you can go on and on and on with public figures whose deaths, the cause of deaths are still being speculated about today. It's fun. And we'll, like, you know, we'll never know. I'm going to wind down with uh, the secret history and going into the real world history is that Tammy does talk about how Parsons, he is marginally acknowledged because he ends up getting, I believe it's a crater either on the edge between like right at the dark side of the moon or outright on the dark side of the moon where they do want to give some knowledge, but also not really be open about it. I think that his occultic ties have really just irreversibly damaged, like no matter what his legacy is that they don't want to openly acknowledge it, but feel like they have to but this does tie into the real world history where marjorie she would scatter his ashes in the mojave desert and burn most of his possessions and later perform astral projection as an attempt to reach out to him and also the oto they held a memorial service where wilfred smith was leading it and helen and sarah end up attending i think that pretty much says everything i need about jack parsons was there any final words that you had about him well, just I think, you know, the point about the crater on the moon, which is real life, is just a great symbol for how they're honoring him, but they're doing it in such an obscure way 
even not only is it on the moon, but it's on this like kind of remote part of the moon or the edge of the moon. So it's kind of like on the edge of, of respectability. And, you know, I think that uh, there's no question that most people who even know who Jack Parsons is, which I think is not a lot of people, are going to remember him, unless you're a scientist or involved in rocketry for something, that you're going to remember him for these other reasons. We're not going to be naming a holiday after him uh, anytime soon. Unfortunately, uh, I think, I think that, that you're right about that. And I think that that crater on the moon symbolizes it. He's kind of like on the edge of respectability because you can't deny what he contributed. But then on the other hand, he is going to be remembered by the general public more because the, the other side of his story is so accessible as opposed to rocket scientry and so bizarre. Since we've wrapped up everything about Jack Parsons, was there anything you want to plug in terms of social media, anything that you're working on or uh, or anything of that nature? Well, I appreciate that opportunity. We're so, you know, we're still uh, out there uh, hawking uh, Murder at Teal's Pond, uh, Hazel Drew and the Mystery That Inspired Twin Peaks, which is about the unsolved murder in 1908 of Hazel Drew, a 19-year-old woman. Lots of um, analogies to Laura Palmer and Twin Peaks in there. And, you know, it's written it's a, it's written like a whodunit, and we hope that you'll support us by going out, Mark Givens and I, by going out and supporting it. It was published in January by Thomas and Mercer. And uh, my next book is coming out next spring. It's about a uh, another true crime a police department in upstate new york that was investigated by the fdi around 2000 and resulted in four cops being sent to jail a fifth one he was threatened uh with losing his job unless he testified against his colleagues he committed suicide chief of the department resigned and then a couple of years later was arrested for cocaine possession and it was very loosely the springboard for the film The Place Beyond the Pines with Ryan Gosling, Bradley Cooper, and Ava Mendez. So that will be coming out in the spring from Fayetteville Mafia Press, which is a publishing company. I started with Scott Ryan, who's the publisher of the Blue Rose magazine and has written books on Fire Walk With Me. He's got one coming out on uh, Lost Highway next spring. And we do about six to 10 books a year, uh, all pop culture and true crime and uh, we've done a lot of Twin Peaks books we did one by Courtney Stallings on Laura Laura's ghosts we've got one coming out by uh, Greg Olson about the third seat through season three of, of Twin Peaks and you know we're always looking for writers and um, we have a website where you can reach out and contact us but you know we do a lot of Twin Peaks stuff and pop culture stuff and uh, you know we would really uh, you know it's tough to be an indie publisher in this world and we would really appreciate any support you can give us by, uh, I mean, we, we're very proud of our output and our books. And if you can support us, we'd be very grateful. And this will be the last thing I say before really signing off. But um, yeah, I, as someone who owns every issue of Blue Rose and the Twin Twin Peaks slash Lynch related books, definitely check them out and definitely order them off of Blue Rose Mag and Fayetteville Mafia Press. Because it's like you were saying before, is that COVID has really jacked up the prices for physical media. And the thing is that you guys have a great track record of stuff that all of which that you mentioned I love, at least the books that are currently out. And um, I always want to make sure that I'm supporting them as much as possible. So highly recommend everyone to check them out on there. That is really nice of you, Colin. Thank you very, very much. I mean, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. To finally sign off, this was actually the episode that I had the most notes on. So thank you for being with me every step of the way on this. And uh, I had a great time recording with you, David. Thank you. So did I. And, you know... Uh... I think you deserve a tremendous amount of credit for the for the uh, you know not just for sort of keeping this uh, all alive, but for the work that you put into it. It's really I can 
attest firsthand to how really amazing and good you are at it. So, so you know, I think you all you deserve a, a big round of applause from all of us. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Together.